When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I know you'll be alright Even when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart you can finally start to live your truthiest life. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. So excited to introduce you to today's guest, Fabian, who's a real person doing real things after surviving hard stuff. I think that's the best way to put it. We met um, really serendipitously at a local market in my town where Fabian and his wife were local vendors selling these beautiful candles and they had great energy. I was just drawn to them and I told Fabian what I do and he said, wow, I'd love to be a guest and sent me a little blurb on his story real quick. And what caught my eye was his reason for wanting to come on. So I don't know if you remember Fabian, but you had emailed me and you said that you want to be able to help others who may be living the kind of life that you were once living or even help those who are no longer living that life, but are still caught up in the demons that get left behind in the aftermath of things. That's exactly right. Yes. Thank you, Lisa, for, you know, again, for for taking the time to speak with me. I, I really appreciate it. And just just going back to, you know, to our original conversation, that original email, it's always been something that has kind of stuck with me very, very deeply. I've kind of been on the better side of things for, for almost 10 years now. I'm 36 this year and, and I have uh, two beautiful boys and I've been married for a good number of years. My wife and I are together almost 10 years now. But even still today, 
you know, I still struggle from time to time with just the effects of my earlier life. And I, I still kind of try and, and find ways to, or I'm trying to find ways to, to kind of deal with those demons and those struggles and just kind of be, you know, the, the best version of myself. And even before I kind of had any idea of, you know, how I'm going to go about doing this, I've always known in my heart that, you know, I think that part of the reason that I, that I lived the way that I did when I was younger is that so I can help others now. Well, we're going to get into your story, uh, but I do want everyone to know that, you know, you have not told this story to a lot of people. You've mentioned to me that not a lot of people in your real life even know it. So um, my audience is a really safe space and whatever you need to, you know, take time to share and share only parts that you feel comfortable sharing is really what what this is about. So your life really is interesting. Um, you moved out of your childhood home at age 18 while you were still in high school, by the way. Yes, yes. I... Uh... I turned 18 on, on March 13th, 2003, and uh, on March 14th, uh, I left my house for as long as I can remember, and I have memories of when I was three years old. From that age forward, my stepfather was a very abusive person, physically, mentally, uh, emotionally. So from the time I was three years old on, he beat me like I was a grown man. And so to say that I counted the years is, you know, not an exaggeration. I, I quite literally counted the years to, to 18. When the day came, I'm, I'm honestly shocked that I even had the courage to, to leave my house. I was young and I was very naive. And I thought that that would be the end of my suffering. I'm going to leave now and, and I'm going to build my own life. And, you know, everything is going to be the way that I dreamt it would be. So who was in your home? It was your mom, so your step... My yeah. mom, my stepfather, and uh, my two sisters. Um, so I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my sister, Amanda, and I were only 15 months apart. We have the same father. And my youngest sister, I'm almost eight years older than her. My stepfather is, is her father. Okay, got it. And were you the only one abused in the house physically? In our younger years, more so. It was primarily just me. You know, I was the one that acted out a bit more. I tried to take a protective role with my, my sister, Amanda. The way I always put it, she, she didn't really have as tough a skin, you know, as thick a skin as I did. You know, if, if she was getting in trouble, she didn't react to it as well as I, as I did. So, you know, there were a lot of times in our life that I kind of stepped in and, and took the brunt of it all for us. It's funny to hear you say the words act out when you also said that you were three years old. You know, I think we talk about children, all of us acting out, not behaving well, but a three-year-old doesn't know. It's just a three-year-old being a kid. It doesn't know what being out of bounds is or what to even do with their own energy. So I am, I'm, I guess I'm curious when you say acting out, was it just normal kid stuff uh, in the beginning, at least? I mean, it's hard to say that I was ever a normal child. <laughs> I was uh, very, very, very uh, ADHD. I was yeah. very, very hyper. I was all over the place, you know, climbing the walls. I was, I admittedly, I know that I was a, uh, I was a difficult child, but as far as Muhammad, that was my stepfather's name. You know, as far as he was concerned, it didn't it didn't take much of anything. My earliest memory, actually, from from that age, uh, there was a time that my sister and I were home. My mom was at work. We had these big, giant potted plants in the house, and he was absolutely anal about these plants. I mean, he was checked on them every day, and and you know, trimming the leaves and watering and, and all of that. And one morning, there was a leaf 
ripped off of the plant or so he thought so he insisted you know it had to be one of us it had to be one of us had to be one of us and eventually he came to the conclusion that okay if you know if nobody's going to take the blame then he's going to punish us both so you know so I was three and my sister was two I took the blame for it and when my mom came home from work later that day you know he kind of jokingly said he's like oh you know I, I I beat him up for it and come to find out it was a dead leaf that my mom had cut earlier in the day before she left to work. And so that's always like a, a story that kind of sticks in my head. You know, when he found out that it was my mom, he just kind of laughed about it. I just made a joke and, you know, and that was it. But when we got older, it was anything. It was, you know, if I got a 79 on a, on a math test or if his, uh, if his sock drawer was, was dirty or if there were too many, uh, wire hangers in his closet or if I left his breakfast bowl in the sink before I left for school. So, I mean, your mom knew she, he told her as early as that that leaf story. I don't think that she was completely aware in the beginning, too. You know, I think he, he, he did well to hide it. And I was really good at not talking about it. You know, just my thing was if I was home with my mom, I felt safe. And, you know, if I was at school, that was a time for me to be a kid. I didn't talk about what went on at home. I tried not to think about what went on at home. You know, when I wasn't home, I was free. You know, that's where I, I really got in a lot of trouble. There were also a lot of chores and expected things for you to be doing that aren't expect. I mean, at least for me in my house, you know, I wasn't responsible for cleaning out the cereal milk bowl or the hangers and things like that. The household chores were entirely our responsibility. That was my day to day. So I joke with my son now, even though. You know, my oldest is eight and he has, you know, no idea of, of the life that his dad lived. But sometimes I'll joke with him like, hey, you know, he'll be sitting on the couch watching TV and complain if I ask him to do, you know, clean up his toys. And I'll tell him, I say, you know, when I was your age, there was there was not ever a time that I was allowed to just be sitting on the couch watching TV. I wasn't even at a certain point in life. I wasn't even allowed to, you know, be in my room just just reading a, a book just to read. If it wasn't a school book or I wasn't studying or doing some sort of chores, I was very likely going to get in trouble. Yeah. So any household chores, laundry, dishes, vacuuming, cleaning, it was our responsibility. You were really robbed of a childhood experience, especially because you had all this energy. Plenty of people have ADHD, you know, that's not your fault. You say I admit it, but like, that's not in your control, you know, when I hear about somebody having ADHD, a learning disability or whatever it is, you know, that it's not like you turn that on and off. That was your wiring. And at the same time, you were not allowed to allow that to express itself in any way. You were very much, this is what you have to do while you're home. That must have just felt very suffocating. It was incredibly difficult, you know, just mentally. It, it took a toll. Like I said, it's, it's something that it doesn't leave you right away, even though you're gone from that situation or, you know, you've created a different life for yourself or, you know, in my case, I've not seen my stepfather in close to 20 years now, but I still, as a grown man, I still feel fear when I see him in my dreams. And I mean, you're reminded at all times of it. Like you said, like when you see your son lounging, you know, it's your instinct to say, well, that's not what I had. I assume that you're, this is a big assumption, but oftentimes with abusers, they're abused. So it's all they know to 
continue the cycle under the guise of discipline, making him a man. Was that kind of the the shaping or not in your eyes? He grew up in Pakistan. He came to this country in his 20s. So the Middle Eastern culture can be very, very, very strict and very, you know, they're very education focused and and disciplinarians so that's i know that that's you know the kind of childhood that he had but for me even when i was a kid even before i understood the you know the cycle of abuse and all of that i or was aware of the cycle of abuse i never i never understood it ever in my life you know i spent every day of my life that i would walk home i would and i'm not even very religious but i swear i would i would spend the full half hour praying to god that it would be an okay day or that, you know, I would be in bed before he came home from work. And I just never understood, even as a child, that if you grew up with that kind of fear, with that constant anxiety and fear and sickness, you know, why would you ever want to do it to your own child ever? And so for me as a dad, I've never laid my hands on my son, on either of my children, and I never will. And it's just not something that, that I believe in. And they, they, they definitely test their dad quite often. And it's difficult for me at times because it's, you know, I don't want to spoil them and I want them to grow up and be respectful and, and grateful. But at the same time, sometimes I don't even, I don't even know how to teach them those things sometimes without doing it the way that I was taught. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. So you leave your house at 18 thinking everything's going to be better. You know, if I can just get out of my house uh, away from him, then I'll be safe. And there's a world full of loving people out there that are not 
my stepfather. And where did you go? Did you have money? <laughs> no, I had absolutely nothing uh, to my name. I was still in high school. Like I said, I was actually at that point, though, I had, I had been kicked out of two high schools. I was in my senior year. So I did get in a fair amount of trouble, <laughs> but I was still enrolled in school. They were still providing me with a tutor. And, you know, again, it was my, my last year of high school. I started staying uh, on a friend's couch. But the thing that I learned very, very quickly is that, you know, as bad as anyone might feel for you or as sympathetic as they might be, when you leave your house, you are nobody else's child. And I have had a lot of mothers cry to me after hearing my story. And, you know, they say, you know, I'll, I'll never let you live like that again. Or, you know, I, I don't understand how a mother could do this to her child. But at the end of the day, you know, they have their own responsibilities and they have their own children. And I was not anybody else's child. So I jumped from house to house and couch to couch. And eventually there were just there were no more couches to jump to. And so um, the first night I ever slept on the streets was kind of just like a it's almost like an accident. Like I was just wandering around and, you know, I knew I had nowhere to go. And, you know, I ended up at a party with some friends or just some people that I had met that evening and, uh, you know, just kind of attached myself to that group. And it's at the end of the night, we were kind of just all, you know, sitting on the sidewalk drinking. And, you know, I knew that I had nowhere to go and I just kind of laid down and fell asleep. And next thing I knew, I was, you know, I was waking up and it was like seven o'clock in the morning and everybody, you know, had just kind of left me there. So I stole a, a newspaper off of somebody's front lawn and I went to the playground over by the high school and I, I just kind of slept there for a couple hours more. That was the first night that I ever slept outside and just kind of really had no idea what to do or how to handle it. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Long Island. Your first night on the street was in a suburban situation? My, yeah, my very first night was in uh, Long Island, a town called Franklin Square in Long mm -hmm. Island. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were continuing to go to school after that? Or once you left home, you were done with school? So I was still, uh, I would meet with my tutor at like the local library, probably from from March to June. I was supposed to meet with him weekly. But from March to June, I probably met with him a total of 10 times between those, you know, those months, you know, he would sit and, and write fake work for me because, you know, he got paid by the hour whether I was there or not. So who was paying for that? The school. Were you fully on the streets at that point? Were you just sleeping in parks? And I was on and off, you know, if I found a family to stay with, maybe I had a month or so on the couch, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of wore out as welcome. Got it. So yeah, I was on and off, mostly sleeping in the playground. At that time, I didn't really, you know, have an idea of how to handle it. You know, sometimes I would sleep in like a, a friend's garage or even, you know, I would put a couple lawn chairs together and, and just kind of lay out behind the garage. And in some cases, sometimes I have somebody throw a blanket out the window for me. You know, that was before I finished high school. But that's a pretty significant stretch, March to June. And get that, you know, you were still, I'm sorry, what was the name of the town? Franklin uh, Square? Franklin Square, yeah. Franklin Square, Floral Park area. Yeah. yeah, so you were still in the area that you're familiar with, with lots of familiar faces, couches that you could crash on, I assume showers you could take once in a while. You know, it was like you find a friend's house to shower or... You know, you just kind of find ways of surviving. So when I was when I was younger, when I was like 15 or so, I had joined a gym. So I was familiar with this one gym in the area that, you know, when you go in to work out, you come in, you go to the locker room and change and then you come out and, and you sign in. So what I would do in my 
my homeless days is I would go to, you know, go to the Rite Aid across the street and, and steal some, quite literally steal some toiletries, shampoo, soap or whatever, you know, and then I would go to the gym and go pretend like I was going to go change in the locker room and I would go shower or whatever. And sometimes even, you know, take a nap in the sauna and then just come out and, and, and just leave. And I'm not sure if they, they probably caught on, but you know, just kind of never said anything, which I was really fortunate for because, you know, at least I could, you know, have a bit of a regular shower. But it was difficult, you know, because I only had so many possessions, especially when you when you move from house to house and place to place and you don't have a regular place to stay, you don't have anywhere to to keep your things, you know. So I had some things in a friend's, you know, in a friend's basement and then the basement flooded. Mm. So I lost a whole bunch of things there. And then, you know, eventually you're reduced to like this, was one duffel bag, all your possessions in the world. And one day I, I stashed the bag because it was, you know, too heavy to carry around. And I would stash it in, in regular places and it would always be there. It's a bag of clothes and, you know, toothbrush, things that I felt like, you know, people would have no interest in. And one day I came back with my things and, and the bag was gone. I'll never forget that day because, like, I just remember going back and seeing that my things were gone and just feeling like this just emptiness. And then it started snowing. I mean, there are times that you just feel so broken. And, you know, it's just taking everything that you have just to, you know, just to wake up in the morning. I was going to ask, actually, is there is waking up the best or the worst part of the day? Because I feel like the hard part is finding somewhere to sleep, making it to the end of the I don't know. I would I'm imagining this is an assumption. Honestly, it's it's crazy that you say that because a lot of people that, you know, knew of my circumstances would always be like, you know, well, why don't why don't you just get a job to your point so much of my day-to-day was finding something to eat hopefully if I'm lucky enough I'll find some people to hang out with for the day long enough that somebody will say hey you know why don't you sleep in my house for the night why don't you crash on my couch or you know sleep on the floor my day-to-day was just to survive just to be okay maybe I'm lucky enough that I'll you know I'll get something to eat today you know if it's a really great day you'll get a shower you know, but just to get some food. So did you go full days without eating? Sometimes we'd go days at a time. You know, there were days that, especially again, when I was, when I, I want to say new to it, but when I was not really accustomed to it and didn't really know what to do, some days, you know, I would go two or three days. I mean, I would be so sick that I would just be throwing a bile. You know, there's nothing left in your stomach, you know, but then I would kind of become familiar with different schemes that I had in the area. So there's one thing that I would do really often if, you know, if it was a rough day and I wasn't able to get anything, I I always knew that certain delis and certain bagel stores or pizzerias even, they get bread deliveries very early in the morning, like two, three in the morning. But what they'll do, the you know, obviously the store is not open for the delivery. If there's like an apartment building or something next door or, you know, a business next door, they would leave it in like the hallway of the apartment building or of the business. And so for me, that 3 a.m. bread drop off sometimes would be like, you hear the angels singing when you see that bread truck because, you know, just to get, you know, a couple of rolls and a bagel would just be everything. And I swear to God, you know, to this day, I always think about him. And I swear that when I become successful, I love to find this man. His name is Elio. And he worked at a, a place called Village Pizzeria in Floral Park. You know, he knew me for many years, my family, when I was younger. But one evening when they were closing, I would ask, sometimes I, I just cut up the courage eventually one day and I, I just went into some pizzeria when they were closing and just asked, like, you know, if there's anything you guys are going to throw out. And, you know, a lot of times they would just tell you no and 
throw it away. But Elio, the, the first night that I went and I asked him, you know, he had seen me around town, so he knew that I was struggling. You know, he didn't hesitate. He took a, a whole box, a whole pizza box, and he filled it up with, with specialty slices and, and pinwheels and, <laughs> and, and, and all. And he just, you know, and he just gave it to me. And, and I swear to God, I, I could have cried. But it got to the point that I, if I would go in, even if Elio wasn't there, you know, his coworkers had seen enough times and knew of me and knew what he did for me that they would say like, hey, you know, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. You know, some days I would, you know, that'd be the only thing that I would have for days. So it's the little things that stick in your mind that I will always be grateful for. So after high school, you leave Floral Park, right? Yeah. So after high school, um, I started staying with a friend of mine, a family friend in Queens. And so I was there for a while. You know, the thing about it is I don't try and come off as an innocent bystander. You know, in those days, I was incredibly depressed. I was dealing with the, you know, just coming off the streets for the first time and all that. But I still at that point had never discussed my childhood with anybody. And so there were just so many things that I was dealing with and I didn't really deal with it properly. And I was also experiencing for the first time in my life freedom. So what I always say is I was literally drunk with freedom because it's something that I've not ever experienced in my life. So for the first time in life, I was able to come and go as I pleased and, you know, hang out with friends, you know, after school. So, you know, for me, there was never any of that. There was no hanging out with friends after school or having people over or going to somebody's house or even talking to a friend on the phone. If, if, if my phone rang at home, I was sick to my stomach because we were not supposed to get phone calls. We were not supposed to give our number out. These were all things that I was for the first time experiencing. So I'm living with this family friend of mine who was engaged and, you know, his fiance was pregnant and, uh, you know, they were living in a one bedroom in Queens and I'm on an air mattress in their living room. I was not doing anything with my life. Not that I was causing problems for them, but, you know, they were at a very different point in their life. And so they, you know, they did what they could for me. But, you know, eventually they, you know, they asked me to leave. And at that point I had made some friends in, in Ozone Park. So I was, you know, I was spending a lot of time there. And so I started sleeping in a park, on a park bench in South Ozone Park. So you're moving away from Floral Park, away from the local eateries that know you and the gyms that kind of see you as a young kid who's just a little bit troubled and becoming essentially a real homeless person with no identity or ties to a community. I was just that homeless kid, you know, so to this new group of friends in Queens, to your point exactly, people don't look at me as a kid. I look older than I am, even though I'm 18. You know, I look a little bit older. I obviously behave like I'm older and nobody knows me as a child. So to your point, I'm this homeless adult, you know, that just kind of popped up and started hanging out with everybody, you know. So there were amazing friends that I met that would, you know, have me over for dinner or, you know, bring a, a bologna and cheese sandwich to the park. It was a little abandoned house right there that, that I would go and sleep in sometimes. And we kind of, a bunch of friends of mine, we kind of set up a room in the house for me specifically. You know, we took a mattress from another room that we found. And, you know, I mean, it was a type of situation that you lay your head down to sleep at night and, and you don't know who's in the room next to you or you don't know who's walking up the stairs. Scary. <laughs> yeah. In ways, I kind of felt safer on, on the park bench, even though uh, the park that I was uh, I was sleeping in, they had actually found a a dead body and not long before that somebody was shot in the head on 
one of those same benches, probably a few yards from where I would sleep. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to never have never have been messed with in those days. But I started dating. I started dating a girl who lived in Staten Island at the time. So what I ended up doing is I ended up moving even further from Long Island and further from Queens. And I would spend a lot of time in the city, a lot of time in Staten Island. She lived with her parents still at the time. She was a couple years older than me, but she still lived with her parents. So what I would do a lot at night is I would ended up sleeping on the ferry. I would sleep on the subway because you know, a warm place to be. $2 to get in or you jump the turnstile and, you know, you just ride the train back and forth all night. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. What does it mean to date when you're homeless? I'm just curious about that. I mean, you're not having her over your house. You're not going out for dinner. What did she she see in you? She just saw some the real you beneath it all? Or was there other things going on? You know, I was very fortunate. I had a few relationships, unfortunately. You know, very difficult, obviously, when you're, you know, when you're a homeless kid. When I met her, I was staying with my family friend in Queens. So, she didn't meet me and I was, you know, sleeping on a train, but she knew of my circumstances. She knew, you know, of my history. So she was, you know, she was very supportive when her parents would leave for work. You know, I'd be at her house. I would shower. I'd do some laundry, you know, eat something, you know, and it was difficult, too, though, because, you know, to be the man in the relationship and then to be, you know, very dependent 
on your girlfriend or on your significant other, it, it was difficult. It was very difficult. At times in life, they were the only person that I had. And you had seven years of on and off the streets, the sleeping on the ferry, abandoned houses, finding random mattresses, sleeping in cars. And just to, to make this a little bit more fun, if you will, <laughs> uh, you're now a father of two. Yes, I am. What a recovery. What a journey. You are a husband. You're yes. employed. You're happy. You're healthy. You have a home. So many amazing you know, things in your life. How does one take the leap from nothing to what I'd call everything, you know, you might not think you've got everything, but when you're looking at nothing, you've got everything that you need. You've got love, safety, a home, all the things that you were wanted. How do you get there? It's um, a very long journey. No part of it is easy. There are a lot of days that, that you just don't want to do it anymore. Well, what was that first step, though? What was there a first step, a first job, a first person you met? What got you out of sleeping on the streets and into renting an apartment? Or what was that first step for you? Along the way, fortunately for me, there were friends that I quite literally would not be here today if, you know, if it were not for them. I think the biggest thing, though, is hope, because even for me, there were there were very specific times in my life that I had absolutely no reason whatsoever to be hopeful but for some reason i still i felt in my heart i felt in my soul that everything was going to be okay and something that i used to tell myself a lot when i was on the street you know if i was was a particularly rough night on the subway uh, there are a few nights that i remember you know standing on the yellow line of an empty subway platform and when those trains come by and they're not stopping at the station i mean that wind that rush is it's so strong. And for me in those days, I was just in, you know, it's like you said, is, is waking up the worst part of your day because you wake up some days and you feel pain in places in your body that you didn't know you could hurt. And so for me, you know, standing on that line and having those trains go by, there were nights that I knew all I got to do, if I just close my eyes and I lean forward, all this pain is gone. It's over. I don't know what comes next, but I know that I don't have to wake up another day and feel like this. What would always come back to me is that if I, you know, if I end my story now and if I do this here, then all my pain, everything that I've survived is for no reason, simply for me to suffer. And so that for a long time is something that I just could not, I couldn't accept and I wouldn't accept. And so it kept me going even when I kind of felt like there was nothing to, to keep going for. And so eventually, you know, I leaned to hustling. You know, I did things that, you know, I wasn't proud of doing, but I had to do because, you know, you can't go and fill out a job application and explain the five-year gap in your resume as I was sleeping on a park bench in Queens or I slept on the ferry for a few months. So sorry, I didn't have a job. So there wasn't really anything that you can say to a potential employer. And so eventually, you know, I, I saved up enough money and, and I got an apartment. My genius plan was you know, let me get a roommate because, you know, that way I have somebody to split the bills with and, you know, be a little bit more secure in that way. So I fronted, you know, the first couple of months rent and, and our furniture. And my friend and I, we had this agreement that, okay, I cover this, you cover the first couple of months rent and, you know, you pay me back what you owe me and, you know, we'll call it even. And so, you know, a few months went by and everything was all good. And, and one day, uh, <laughs> My roommate says he's going to go do his laundry and three or four days go by. So I just, you know, 
pushed the door open to his room and and I noticed that he had taken his pillows. He never came back. So about two weeks later, my landlord comes knocking on the door only to find out that my roommate has not paid any of our rent since the first three months that I paid. Now I am living in this apartment by myself again, roommate abandoned, four months rent due, and I'm going to be evicted again. And I've barely been off the streets for six or seven months. So at that point, I am waking up every day at three o'clock and I just have what feels like no future. And I'm about to land on the streets again. And I'm not mentally the same person that I was that felt like I could survive that, that life anymore. So I was hanging out with a friend of mine one day and, you know, he and I had known each other for many years. I knew that he was having, you know, issues with drugs at the time, you know, hardcore drugs. And I knew previously at one point he was at my house a week or so before. And I had a feeling that he was doing something in my bathroom, you know, and I didn't say anything that day. But I said to myself, if it happens again, I'm going to say something. So I was hanging out with this friend and he's in the bathroom a long time again. You know, so I knock on the door like, Vinny, all right, I'm good. I'm good. And eventually I knew something was up. And so I ended up kicking the door in on him and hits him in the nose. And he stands up off the toilet bowl and he has a belt wrapped around one arm and a strap around the other and a needle falls out of his arm and he's just starts crying, telling me that he needs help, that he can't stop. You know, he doesn't know what to do. So I pick the needle up off my living room floor and I throw it out the window onto Jamaica Avenue into the street. And, you know, he's there, he's crying and he's promising, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I just, I need help, man. I need help. And then about two minutes later, he runs out the door grabs a needle out the street, hops in his car, and he, he speeds away. And so, you know, the next day I'm waking up from a nap at about 7 o'clock at night, doing nothing with myself, and I call him. Let me call him and see how he's doing. So I called him, and he answered the phone, and he's like, bro, I, I can't talk right now. I'm in class. Let me call you back. And he hung up the phone. And I swear to you, Lisa, I swear to you, that moment is the moment that changed my life forever. In that moment, I sat there and my dirty apartment that I was getting evicted from at 7.30 at night that I had just woken up. And this friend of mine who I just took a needle from him and threw it in the street and he ran out and grabbed it and ran away. He's in school right now doing something with himself. <laughs> like if he can do this, I could do this. You know, he can do it. I can do it. And at the very least, I know somebody that goes there. You know, I've been out of school for almost 10 years. The very thought makes me sick to my stomach, you know, but if he can do it, I can do it. So we're talking about college, going back to college? Yeah, so he, at this point, it wasn't even college though. At this point, he was going to school, he was going to a place called Sanford Brown. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. They handled certificates in medical billing and coding. I see. Uh, medical assistant, that type of thing. Right. The jobs you so, can get without a college degree. Yeah, but it was just a certificate. Just, yeah, yeah, it was just a certificate. It was just something. I decided that I was not good with other people's fluids. So okay. <laughs> medical assistant was not for me. And that's, that's the class that he was taking. So I went for medical billing and coding. Cool. I went to this place called Sanford Brown in Garden City for medical billing and coding. I, I signed up for night classes, six to 1030. So I figured that no matter what I was doing, you know, no matter how tired I was or what I was doing the night before that I can get to school, get to class every night at six o'clock. 
So I decided like, you know, let me not overload and do the day classes and, you know, eight hours of class a day. Like it's been 10 years. Let me, you know, go slow. I graduated high school barely with a D average. So that's where I began. And you got a job from there, I assume. Now you've got a certificate. So I ended up leaving Stanford Brown. So it gets a whole lot better than that. So I ended <laughs> up leaving uh, Stanford Brown with a 3.97. I got one B minus <laughs> and I saw or one B rather. And I swear that B was an 89. Like I never thought in my life that I would be upset with an 89. I actually ended up meeting my wife there, Jennifer. She was already going to Sanford Brown in the same class as my friend who was already attending. She was going to be a medical assistant. They were actually friends already. So then here I come. The way it was set up is they were actually kind of talking with each other. And she had a friend. He's like, oh, she has a friend. So it was like, at first it was my wife and my friend. And then I was supposed to be with her friend. So we just kind of, you know, it was very platonic in the beginning. We were just straight up friends. You know, she was with Vinny and I was talking to her friend. And it just kind of started that way. And um, yeah, he was actually supposed to graduate before me because he was in school for couple of months prior to me but he ended up having to drop out because of his you know his issues so I ended up finishing my wife's future wife and I started dating yeah and she got pregnant very shortly after honestly she got pregnant maybe four or five months after we actually started dating we knew each other for, for maybe a year or so before that and when I graduated that certificate sat on myself for like two weeks and and one day I was just looking at it and I said, you know what? So now I want a degree. It's like, you know, I could do this. Now I want a degree. And so there was actually the parent company of Sanford Brown owned a college called Briarcliff. So Briarcliff and Sanford Brown were somewhat affiliated. So if I were to go to any other college at that point, they would have looked at my high school transcript. But because Briarcliff and Sanford Brown were associated, they looked at my Sanford Brown transcript. So I ended up going to Briarcliff in, uh, in Bethpage. So this is for college now? <laughs> yeah, this is for college. General so, college. Okay, yeah. cool. So I ended up in Briarcliff. I got my associates and my bachelor's. Then I went to Malloy for my master's. So what do you have your master's in? In business marketing. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Do you work in business marketing now? Most recently, I was vice president of recruiting for, uh, for a long-term care uh, pharmacy called ProCare. They okay. are actually one of the largest uh, long-term care pharmacies in the Northeast. So I was brought on. They were about a 500-person company, and I brought on 167 employees in my, my first calendar year with them. Wow. Was, uh, prior to COVID, unfortunately, you know, I was laid off in September. So it's been uh, it's been a little bit difficult, you know, but kind of going back to something that you said, I, I have to kind of remind myself often how lucky I am. There were days that I quite literally used to pray for, you know, the problems that I have today. I used to, you know, I used to be envious of friends who would complain about bills and, and things like that. Because it was like, I wish I had that car or that house to have a bill to, to be complaining about, you know. So it was something so simple as, Jesus, I wish I had a car bill. <laughs> like, you know, so the days I'm like, oh, the car is due. It's like, you know, I used to find myself fortunate enough to to sleep in a car as nice as the one that I drive. So, you know, I have to remind myself how, how lucky I am some days. You know, it's truly, it's a it doesn't blessing. doesn't sound like you're very lucky, but it sounds like you've really <laughs> persevered 
through some things. I don't know if I'd call you the luckiest guy in the world, but um, certainly uh, unique and shaped into someone that the world needs. So, and it's amazing to hear your success from barely graduating high school to VP of a company, you know, with major success. I know COVID flipped a lot of businesses on your head. It didn't really matter how well you were performing. And most importantly, like I said in the beginning, a father of two, a loving home, a wife that knows all of your darkness, if you will, you know, not your darkness, but the, the, the parts of you that you probably wish to hide and still loves you whole, which was not what you what you learned as early as three was you're not lovable, I assume, is what that felt like, you know? So you're thriving in all in all ways, the way I see it. And I hope that you get to tell this story more and more because, like you mentioned to me, you are not afraid to speak your voice. And I think maybe all of us are born that way, but life experiences make us fearful to speak out, to be ourselves to do the hard things and your life experiences certainly told you to shut up, sit down, you know, don't be you. And you are still, you said 36 and still connected to the core you. So that, that on its own is impressive. You know, what's funny is something that I, you know, that I always stick to now is that um, to your point, when I was younger, I, you know, I used to always want someone else's life. I used to always wish that, you know, I could have that person's life, but I would always say that, I still wanted to be me, though. And so when I was young, I didn't really understand what that meant. You know, like I said, I didn't share my story very often. I kind of was ashamed of a lot of my, you know, my past. But the older I got, the more that I realized that I would not have been me. You know, I wouldn't be me and I wouldn't have these thoughts and I wouldn't be the dad that I am today or the husband that I am today if it were not for my very specific circumstances. You know, as unfortunate as it may be or as difficult as it might have been for me, you know, it all made me who I am. You're a survivor, you know, every step of the way. So I'd like to thank you so much for living your truthiest life and sharing it with us and sharing your story here. Like I said in the beginning, you know, you haven't shared this with a lot of people. You're just a guy looking to, you know, make the most out of his life. And thank you for, for bringing your voice here. We're all so inspired by you. It's my pleasure. Lisa, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I I really, really appreciate it. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Overwhelmed by mess in your pickup bed? Upgrade with the decked drawer system. It's completely redesigned. Accommodate more gear in larger drawers. Extend effortlessly and keep your equipment clean and dry. Secure your loads with integrated D-ring tie-downs. Optimize your truck bed space. Proudly made in the USA. Lockable and compatible with any truck from the past 20 plus years. Simple online ordering and easy installation. Visit deck.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Get decked. Truck bed storage, toolboxes, and accessories. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention we have one of the top zoos in the country. 
So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.